Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. As we start the new year, I wanted to talk about the future in a way that is actually a lot more hopeful than we hear in the news today. You probably know that I've been really interested in exploring how technology is shaping our thoughts and our behaviors. I recently finished shooting a 24 lecture series for The Great Courses. It's going to come out sometime this year. And in the course of my research, I came across a book that I found really interesting and that was written in a very different voice from a lot of the other books I had read. It's called Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow by Ramesh Srinivasan. Ramesh is a professor of information studies and design media arts at UCLA. And he's talked a lot about technology and a lot of other media outlets. But what makes him different from most of the other journalists that I speak to, I guess, and insofar I don't even know if he necessarily would refer to himself as a journalist. But the fact is, he did investigative reporting in parts of the world that generally are not covered by people who are interested in technology. He doesn't mean just beyond the valley, like let's go, you know, somewhat outside of Silicon Valley. He means in places like Africa, which are often ignored. And he talks about ways in which people in very far off, forgotten places are actually serving as role models for what you and I might do in terms of improving our relationship with technology. Ramesh Srinivasan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, Indra. It's really nice to join you. So this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, Uh, not only because I live slightly just beyond the valley. I don't think that's exactly the point you were making in your book (laughs) up in San Francisco, Um, but because, of course, I'm surrounded by these questions and issues that you raise in your book. And one of the things that I think people will be surprised at, first off, is that I want to start asking you why you um, sort of wanted to talk about what's happening beyond the valley, because by all measures, the Valley is doing a pretty good job at producing, you know, um, products that we use and that we seem to like and that have taken over. So why should we look beyond the Valley? 
Yeah, I mean, the Valley is doing a great job of uh, inflating its own value and uh, supporting its own interests. I mean, we're talking about some of the wealthiest companies uh, in terms of uh, valuation in the history of the world. But uh, at the cost of uh, the companies within Silicon Valley's own self-interest uh, are great harms uh, that the rest of us are facing, uh, working people, uh, democracies, uh, cultures and nations across the world, even uh, minority and vulnerable people and communities in our country and around the world, from uh, women in relation to artificial intelligence systems, uh, immigrants in relation to facial recognition systems, black folk, uh, African-American communities in relation to predictive policing and courtroom algorithmic systems. So, you know, what is supportive of, uh, if you will, the internal Valley's interests has come at the cost of everybody else which means it's a system that's not working. And so just to kind of point out to you, Indra, like when I named, uh, when, I, when I came up with the title of this book, Beyond the Valley, I, of course I was speaking about Silicon Valley in a literal sense, and of course Seattle with Amazon and maybe even uh, the, the Chinese tech world. But I was also speaking metaphorically. I was trying to talk about how we can think about technology in ways that are not constrained by uh, the models that have worked in some ways and not worked in many other ways that are part of the valley. Um, and I'm from Silicon Valley myself, so I know how wonderful and how you know, full of genius the valley is. So my goal is not to disparage or attack anyone, but to ask for us to kind of rein things in and try to imagine and work toward a digital world of the future that supports all of our interests, uh, one that is not zero sum. Yeah, so you talk, you make this distinction between, you know, thinking about these, the big five companies, as you call them, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, I don't know, fill in what are the rest two, I guess, like, is Twitter considered one of the big five? What's the big, what are the big five? Uh, Apple, Microsoft, Apple, Apple, and Microsoft, right? Okay, so Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, you call them global empires, rather than visionary tech companies. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And it goes just beyond the semantics. So I wanted to ask you kind of to uh, unpack that for us. Sure. I mean, if you look at the global uh, implications and uh, impacts and actions of, uh, you know, what might seem like, you know, benevolent uh, Silicon Valley only or Silicon Valley centric companies, you can actually see how the empire metaphor is appropriate. Um, let's look at Apple, for example. You know, I went to Homestead High School, which is where um, <laughs> Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak attended as well. So, you know, they are mythologized in my high school, and you know, they had they were both geniuses, and and Wozniak in particular is a you know a very conscious humanitarian in many cases. Okay, that's true, but where are our iPhones being you know created? Uh, what are the labor practices associated with that? Well, well, now we know increasingly it's dehumanizing sweatshop type labor in places like uh, Shenzhen in China. Uh, where are the minerals being extracted from that actually create and form uh, not just our iPhones, but every uh, digital uh, system, a piece of hardware we know of? Uh, that's coming from Congolese mines, places in the world where there's uh, all sorts of uh, warlord type activity. Uh, illicit activity and mass killings in relation to uh, the extraction of minerals through mining industries. Uh, where are the devices that we throw away going? Uh, they're going to e-waste landfills in parts of the world, uh, like in West Africa and Ghana, 
and in other parts of the world as well. So in a sense, the, the term empire is appropriate, uh, not because I'm trying to say that these companies are evil. My goal, again, is not to vilify anyone, but to use appropriate metaphors to kind of allow us to, to understand what these impacts really are. You know, our, it might seem like our experiences, you know, with Apple, for example, of an iPhone might just be buying it in our local store, using it, buying a new one when there's better technology, and that's it. But what if we start to realize that Apple has uh, has access to our uh, our eyes, our dilated pupils, <laughs> or our retinas? Uh, what about we, about a Apple having access to our fingerprints? What about Apple saying, "Hey, we don't record your conversations. We are unlike Facebook and Google and the other ones, you know, all about your privacy," and then admits that they were recording Siri conversations? That is how an empire functions. An empire functions based on extraction of globalized labor, of globalized materials and supplies for its own private, personal, self-serving benefit. And Empire's goal is to expand and grow as much as possible. And that is exactly uh, the goal of any private large corporation in our country. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so much uh, to talk about, even in just the first few chapters of your book. And I, I just want our listeners to know that the majority of the book is actually about literally beyond the valley technologies that are not necessarily part of the big five. Uh, so so we will get there. But there are so many things that you bring up in those first couple chapters that there are just a couple more that I want to cover. You know, one, you talk about, you know, it's it's we're not really, you know, we shouldn't maybe necessarily think about the way we use technology as kind of like these these tech bundles, but rather it's agreements that we're making with these companies. And you kind of alluded to that a minute ago about the the data that we are allowing them to access. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about uh, this state that we are in with these agreements? Because of course, all of us, at least, I don't know anyone that actually sits there and reads the agreement and then decides not to use the technology after having you know read the fine print. You know, we all kind of know going in where maybe we feel a little icky, especially if it's some kind of, you know, very obvious uh, surveillance device like Google Home. <laughs> but, you know, uh, even the less obvious ones, like as you mentioned, like, oh, now I can use my fingerprint to open up my phone or my face to open up my phone. What do you think is going to be the future forward in terms of these agreements? And how should we be thinking about them? Yeah, it's such a good question. Well, you know, in reality, we have very little understanding of what we sign on to when we use almost any technology today. And that's not just, you know, you you mentioned Google Home or, you know, Amazon's Echo. And those seem like particularly obvious examples of the invitation of surveillance into um, into our homes and into our lives. But in reality, these telephones that we have with us in our pockets at all times are very similar devices. They're recording us at all times. Um, Edward Snowden has made the point that even when um, the phone is on airplane mode, it's recording us. So, you know, we've invited this into our lives. But the much larger and important point for me is the point uh, regarding what are we signing onto when we engage with digital systems of all kinds? And our lack of understanding, even if we read the fine print around what those things are. And part of that is because legal language is unclear. And part of that, honestly, in my opinion, is because there's a, and there's a very deliberate attempt to not make it clear, to not make it intelligible what the risks are that we are bearing when we participate into digital systems of all kinds. So let me give you some examples. For example, 
when we sign on to credit cards, to use credit cards, did we realize that our credit card transactions could be bought and sold? Most of us didn't know that. That's a very simple thing to tell someone, but most of us don't know that. Could there be credit cards where that doesn't occur, where they don't sell the data? Of course there could be. Why are there not? That is exactly what happened. Uh, Cambridge Analytica purchased the credit card records of 220 million Americans and cross-referenced that with Facebook data they had on a similar number of Americans to manipulate them in relation to the 2016 election. And that's something they've been doing all over the world long before that, across the world, in Kenya and Mexico and so on. So that's a transaction we don't realize. Here's another one. I'll give you one more example, and then you can keep asking me about it, Indra. What if data that is that was gathered about me when, say, I was 20 years old and you know I did something or the other that maybe I'm a little embarrassed about or I don't want to be known when I'm 40 years old, but that data is gathered about me and is accessible to an insurance company or a potential job employer when I'm 40? Is that something we're okay with? Are we okay with our lives being not just monitored, but everything about us being known and accessible to whomever has power in our society. And I don't think we are. Most importantly, this is very, very critical because what we've realized increasingly is the data that's being gathered about us, of which we have no clue, but we do know it's 24 7, 365, is entering into a computational or algorithmic feedback loop, meaning that data is being processed and computational decisions are being made around how to behaviorally modify us, how to steer and influence our behavior, not just so we buy certain things, but so we think in certain ways, so that we have political experiences in certain ways. And there's increasing evidence, and I describe it in Beyond the Valley, this new book, that the content that is fed to us through algorithmic recommendation systems is based on one fundamental principle, Keep your attention, keep your attention, which turns into addiction. And the reason they want us to stay on there, just like a TV station wants us to stay on there, is because the more we're hooked onto there, the more they have power over us because they are constantly harvesting and gathering and monetizing and extracting data in ways that we are in ignorant about and the outcomes of which can be potentially disastrous for our personal lives and for our societies, especially if you're a community that's vulnerable in our world, like uh, you know, black and brown communities, or immigrant communities, or women in relation to um, you know uh, technology uh, jobs. So these are examples I give in the book. You know, the latter one is algorithmic systems that are using data about the world that are making decisions that women are not equipped to be good scientists and technologists. Human resources algorithms are not choosing women for these jobs because they're learning from a world that thinks women are not as good as men at science and technology. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with training an algorithm on historical data where there has been bias in history. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think there is a, at least, you know, there's a push towards being kind of aware of this and, and, and a call to change. So like Kate Crawford's AI Now Institute in New York is an example 
And so, so maybe that's something that is already starting to percolate down. But I guess the, the, the one thing that I, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you, you make the comment that we hear like, or, or you actually don't make the comment, but you remind us that people sort of set aside some issues of gun control by saying, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And ultimately, you know, we are the choosers of where we spend, pay our attention. And, you know, there's just, it, it's a fact that some of these big companies like Netflix, which I think now is like the biggest uh, entertainment company, you know, and by some measures, bigger than any uh, network, uh, is creating better content. And that's why we're watching it. Uh, so it, in that sense, it is like, I, you know, recently, I was just giving a talk at, in Indiana, and I was in the hotel, and I was just like flipping through. I mean, television's terrible, like just couldn't sit through it, you know, with all the commercial breaks and everything. So I'm so used to just watching an entire season if I want to at my own time. So, you know, how do we, how do we still like, or, or what, I guess, what do you see the the future in terms of um, these companies are, are going to be essentially influenced by the fact that if they're not creating good content, if there are companies that are creating more interesting content that maybe not, that's not as radicalizing, say, if we're talking about YouTube and politics or, you know, not as full of like conspiracy theories as, as our Facebook news feed can become. You know, are, are we going to choose those other platforms or are we just um, beyond the point of no return because it's just so these these these, you know, big five are so ubiquitous in our lives? Yeah, I mean, the, you're asking a great question. And it's on a on a couple different levels. Uh, this is an important point. Um, I mean, Americans and actually people across the world still love long form storytelling, right? We still love movies and we still love the shows that we watch on Netflix or HBO or Showtime or what have you. That's not really where my attention is focused. I am a little bit concerned about what I know, which is not a lot because not a lot has been written about it, about Netflix uh, capture of our personal data. But Netflix is a model in theory that is totally appropriate. You know, we pay for a subscription to a service to receive content that we want to watch. There's nothing wrong with that, right? And that's very similar to, you know, cable television, even though, of course, as you alluded to, and I agree, the content's way better, especially Black Mirror. <laughs> uh, so, way, way more accurate. That's one model. Another model is, is harvesting content that isn't paid for by Netflix, but that we all create. That is what the Facebook, YouTube, et cetera model is, right? I don't go onto YouTube to see anything, hardly anything, even though they're starting to create content that YouTube creates. I don't go on Facebook for sure to see any content that Facebook creates. I go on those platforms to see what Indra creates or what you go on to see what Ramesh creates, right? And that's what I'm explaining in Beyond the Valley. The labor that found, forms the foundation of those computational systems is done by us. The content that forms the foundation of the systems is our own. Yet somehow in the middle, mediating all of those experiences are choices that are being made computationally based upon optimizing the inflammatory and, and, and harvesting and extracting our data through attention and addiction and behavioral modification. And that is what I'm calling out because you can imagine at scale what that does, as we know all too well, to an election or to a country, or to a democracy, or to vulnerable communities. So yes, there is that other model. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, Jaron Lanier, for example, has, you know, made comments like, oh, we should go to the subscription model. There are a lot of different proposals out there. I'm not trying to push one versus the other. 
But I do think that the status quo where we are the product uh, being sold, you know, that in itself is okay, fair enough. But how are we being sold to one another? Who's monetizing those transactions? For what purposes? With what outcomes? With what forms of oversight or auditing or governance? Those are the questions that are uh, conspicuously absent. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We talk about how these companies have the ability and are collecting so much information about us. But the... The one thing that kind of always grates at me is is that you know do they do they really have the ability and are they really holding on and using those data? I mean, I, I almost feel sometimes that like we actually have you know Google Home at home and I don't worry about it because I think it seems kind of it sounds kind of paranoid to think that it you know there's somebody who's actually listening when there's so much more interesting stuff going out in the world than what's happening in my kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, I mean, I think I think on some level uh, we are okay with. Um, you know, exchanging uh, some intimacy and insight into our lives for the convenience and efficiency that technologies offer to us. But at the same time, I think the, you know, it, it's sort of like we're entering into uh, a sort of dark prison or a dark chamber without understanding uh, what we are giving up at what times with what potential costs or outcomes, right? So I think that's the issue here is that, you know, we don't know what data of ours could be used in what ways. We do know that all of it can be stored and all of it can be computed upon. Uh, is all the data we provide at all times equally valuable? No, it has a lot to do with the function of what those that are attempting to harness the data for their own gain, whether it's, you know, shady third parties or corporations, or insurance companies, or police departments, <laughs> or courtrooms. It, it, it all depends on who they are, and then they can mine the data because all of it's available and all of it is computable. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, yes, in a vacuum, specific things we might say or do might not be 
that important uh, for particular, uh, you know, threats that we might perceive. Uh, but it all could be potentially valuable based on who uh, wants to use it for what circumstances. So I think for me, it's it's really about kind of reining things back in to get a bit of a, to, you know, and I in, in, in Beyond the Valley, in the new book, I argue for what I call a digital bill of rights. And in that, I ask for disclosure. We need to know when data be, is being gathered about us. We need to know roughly who has access to what types of data about us. We need to know... Uh, how that data is being used to influence what we see or not see. And a lot of this can be expressed. I know you're a scientist as well. A lot of this can be expressed uh, heuristically, you know, I mean, just in terms of classifications or categories. There can be ways we can think about how to communicate these issues. Um, I also think it's very important that people uh, own their own data, right? So if I say, hey, I'm going to deactivate my Facebook account, no longer will Facebook be able to use my data. I think it's very inappropriate that we have evidence, or at least some reporting. I leaned on a lot of journalism uh, when I wrote Beyond the Valley, uh, that we have some evidence that uh, Facebook and other companies are gathering data about people who never created accounts with them. Is that something we're okay with? So, you know, to me, it's like this data stuff. I, I want to move out of the binary of things are bad, things are good type of thing, and more ask important questions that are human-centered that are people-centered, that are ethically centered, uh, that can guide this process moving forward. I am aware, again, from you know many of my friends in Silicon Valley that they are telling me we don't want the status quo to continue in this way. So, okay, let's figure out a way to do this better. Let's include journalists like yourself in the design of Facebook's you know, news tab. You know, Let's involve Black Lives Matter in the design of predictive policing systems. Let's actually humanize the processes through collaboration and inclusion of who builds technology, who audits technology, who owns technology. We can even think about that issue of ownership. That's really important. I write quite a bit about the economics of this digital uh, you know, world that we live in from the gig economy to automation to etc. in the book. And you know, I ask the question, right? Can we have the efficiency that Uber offers us without uh, workers being starved and disenfranchised, not getting you know $5 an hour, no, no health insurance, no pension, no unionization, though we're trying to change that you know, here in California. Can we not do something better? Can we not have a situation where uh, instead maybe workers have some equity over the Uber? Can't we have the wonders that digital technologies offer us to bring us together and connect us with one another without the costs of disenfranchising everybody? Uh, can't we have the efficiencies of digital technology in ways that are collaborative and cooperative? That, that this is a term I use quite a bit in the book, that lift all boats rather than built in the zero-sum model of the status quo. That's what, those are questions I'm asking because I think we need to ask the questions so we can guide the process forward so that technologists and engineers at these companies can start experimenting with models that might be more inclusive and uplifting. I totally get the the sort of digital bill of rights idea and I and I and I get all the sentiments behind it but isn't it a little bit contrary to the whole sort of sense of the internet to call for more regulation when the whole idea was disruption and you know a, a kind of uh, you know what I mean like the, you know like reddit is something that you talk about quite a bit in a relatively positive light because it seems that they are kind of hands off in terms of curating content and sort of directing people um 
And it's very unregulated. <laughs> and it, ha- you know, there's some pretty awful subreddits. So I wanted you to kind of address this, this issue of like, while, st- while calling for more regulation or more kind of purposefulness or, or what you want, whatever, however you want to frame it, you know, how does that speak to the fact that it's at the very opposite of what the internet is supposed to be for? Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, of course, you know, the internet is and has always been a place where all these voices could matter, including including fringe voices, right? They could all become part of the internet. And, you know, it was, it's this technology power, so powerful and beautiful, where all of us on a peer-to-peer level, you know, no matter who we are or where we are, in theory at least, could have equal voice. We could all share. And I share and love that vision. I love the openness of the internet. You know, I um, uh, you know, was, I, I loved the Usenet news groups, you know, back in the day when I was like, you know, really young, but anyway, I was like, I was really into it, you know, and there are these, it, 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 it did have that kind of community focused manner uh, approach toward it where, you know, the norms of community governed it and we all could share. And what I'm, I'm not calling for regulation in this kind of, uh, you know, top-down governmental way. What I'm asking for are interventions, and not only from the, the space of policymakers, but interventions into a system that is producing and amplifying so much inequality, so much ma- surveillance, manipulative behavior, um, and so many problems for uh, the economic injustices and inequalities we see in our country. Because yes, you're right, of course, uh, that the open internet is uh, has tension with uh, kind of a highly regulated internet. And I'm actually not calling for either of them, but I am pointing out that actually what Facebook, Google, and their ilk are doing are regulating the internet. Because what they're doing is taking an open internet and closing it off completely. They're closing it off altogether by putting us into behavioral silos, echo chambers, filter bubbles, you know, we know all those terms, they're commonplace now. But these are, there is no open internet when it comes to the dominance of platforms that are algorithmically routing us through the internet. So I just want to remind our listeners that uh, Ramesh's book, Beyond the Valley, How Innovators Around the World Are Overcoming Inequality and Creating the Technologies of Tomorrow is available at booksellers everywhere. And, you know, I, I, I'm mindful of we don't have a lot of time, uh, but I do really w- want you to address one thing that we actually don't talk about almost at all, um, and that is technologies coming out of Africa. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the state of, of affairs there? Yeah, so the there are quite a few parts of uh, Beyond the Valley tell stories and examples of kind of human-focused innovation, technologies that support collective interests, community interests, even environmental interests from across the world. And one of the great continents of the world uh, to kind of look at those themes uh, is the continent of Africa. Um, people may not realize this, but the vast majority of internet users, even Facebook and Google users, are not in North America. They're not in Europe. Uh, they're in Africa, South America, uh, etc. The con- uh, South Asia, Asia, the continents of the global South, and Africa in particular is the youngest continent in the world, the fastest growing population in the world, and the place where the internet is most rapidly spreading. So of course that means you know the big companies, uh, Facebook, Google, etc., have their eyes on the continent. Um, they are trying to invest and trying to understand, you know, the issues that are occurring there and trying to reach those, those audiences, not because each person per se has much in terms of income, but because of the overall network effects of having large numbers of potential 
users as well as data again. So that is one way of looking at what's occurring there. But a whole other way of looking at it is a cultural, a collective, uh, uh, even a political ethos that is very much part of what you see occurring, especially in East Africa, where I did field work for this book. So I attended multiple Uber strikes uh, in Kenya and Uganda. That's fascinating. I don't know if many of your listeners know that Uber is all over East Africa, even where you take two-wheelers and three-wheelers, you know, these tuk-tuks that you catch on the corner of the street, that you can get them through Uber these days. They have intruded into the informal economy. But moreover, what I start to, started to see is a different kind of innovation with technology happening, especially in the country of Kenya. People who have less resources are actually innovating with technology. They're doing more with less. And that's why I use the term innovator in the title of this book, Beyond the Valley. The reason I use that in the title of the book is because I'm asking us, what is innovation really? So people who have very few resources, who don't have a banking system, don't have a strong electrical grid system, are still innovating with technology out there. Let me give you a few examples. They didn't have banking systems. The banks didn't see most, the vast majority of people in places like Kenya, even Somalia, as worthy of investment because they're too poor, they're too high risk, whatever. So what did people do? They actually developed their own digital forms of exchange. They started trading credits on their phones. That became that blew up. That becomes that became so massive that it overwhelmed the banking industry and became an extremely profitable industry that involved many many people. It gave people access to resources and exchange that didn't exist before. That's an example called M-Pesa. And some countries you wouldn't believe this, like Somalia, are completely cashless almost at this point. It's almost all mobile uh, tradings that are occurring. Um, so that's one model. Another model of innovation that's occurring there is you can see how people are trying to spread and access, spread their access to the internet, but recognizing that the electrical grid is unstable. So they're using renewable energy to build Wi-Fi routers. They're even installing routers in places like the Dadaab uh, refugee camp, which borders Somalia in Kenya, where Ilhan Omar, our congresswoman from Minnesota, actually spent some time when she was young. So they're actually trying to think about energy sources moving past the grid. They're also thinking about innovation in currency-based ways. But here's the one that most blew me away. As I mentioned earlier in our interview, Indra, um, in Beyond the Valley, I tell the story of what happens to these devices we throw away when they no longer work, which is a design feature of Apple, which it calls planned obsolescence, right? These devices are designed to die. Like a Monsanto seed, they are designed to die, these devices, right? <laughs> um, and what happens with them? Well, they often end up in places like Ghana and landfills, which then create e-waste, which can then be carcinogenic. But then what did I see happening in, in Kenya, which is something you see happening all over the world? I see it in India. I've seen it in Latin America. I've even seen it in LA. People are taking phones that are designed to die and they're opening up them up. They're soldering them. They're actually really hacking them. This is what hacking really is. It's playful. It's creative. And they're extracting things and they're repairing electronics. They're giving things that are dead new life. They're repairing electronics. They're taking parts out of certain electronics and including it with other electronics to build new devices. I even saw this with 3D printers. This is the thing that blew me away. People are building 3D printers out of 60% destroyed e-waste parts um, and, and, and in Kenya. And they're building them. In, and these 3D printers are a fraction of the cost of American and Chinese 3D printers. And they work way better 
they're, they, they're, according to every mechanical engineering test, because they're designed by innovators who understand the social, uh, the economic, and even the, if you will, the environment, you know, the like physical environment, like the, the, the winds, the, the, the air, the, you know, all the resistant tests, the mechanical engineering tests, they are optimizing technologies for their environment. So this is something completely different that we can imagine. If you always look at different layers, you see examples of what innovation actually is. So innovation, yeah, sure. We, one way we can look at innovation is from, uh, you know, fancy design lab uh, in Mountain View. And another, which is like right where I'm from, by the way, <laughs> another another way of looking at innovation is to think about doing more with less, being resourceful. That's a whole other model. And this is, by the way, not me just kind of exoticizing a few random examples. This is the norm. You see this all over the world. And in Beyond the Valley, I give stories of this from all over the world. And you can even see examples of this, Indra, right here in the United States. Communities in Detroit didn't have connectivity wanted to build digital literacy, wanted to improve their schools, wanted to improve job possibilities and entrepreneurial systems. They built, with the help of various allies, their own community digital network. And this is a you know a city, Detroit, that's been abandoned, right? That's been devastated, that's been traumatized. So amidst trauma comes new seeds, new soil and fertility, and new, so- new forms of growth can come out of these forms of collapse. And I want to tell that story because it's actually environmental in scale, but it's also human-centered in scale. And so the book actually, Beyond the Valley, believe it or not, is actually an optimistic book. It's a book of hope. It's asking us to learn from one another and try to get together as a, as a species, as a society, to think about what kind of society we want to live in and then ensure that technologies serve those purposes and that we collaborate and include the right people so we can start to make technology serve us as a collective humanity rather than this extractive unequal world that is getting more unequal by the day within which we live. So in the spirit of that hope, and as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are nodding along to everything that you're saying, what would be one resolution that you might suggest people might take on in the new year uh, to try to get closer to this kind of future that you envision and hope for? So do you mean in terms of their own personal practices with technology or yes, in terms of their, yes. yeah. Like what yeah. is one tangible, actionable thing that people can try to do this year to get closer to a reality in which, you know, we, we don't have this hopeless future that so many of us see with technology? Great, great. So I, 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 can I cheat and give you two? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. One is something that I think a lot of us already do. And this is a whole other way of looking at the internet. Use the internet to, as, and use your participation on the internet, whether it's financial or otherwise, to support causes you really believe in that are based upon the values you believe in. You know, I, um, I don't know if, if you were aware of this, but I'm a national surrogate for Senator Sanders uh, in this 2020 election. So I really feel like our campaign is, is, is remarkable because we have record numbers of people that are coming together as donors and volunteers. And the Internet is supporting that. Right. So that's something that I think is important. It's not just about Bernie, but it's a general sort of theme that I think is really important. So use the, po- the positive, uplifting bringing us together, crowdsourcing even, components of the internet for good. That's one. The second is I would ask people to be playful with their digital experiences. Um, Go without your phone for a few hours and see how it impacts your mental processing. Um, Think about whether you can do some transactions uh, in ways that are maybe not digitally mediated to the same extent and see what that experience is like for you. 
play with your own digital footprints. See what it's like to turn, you know, to turn your phone off uh, at certain times, or maybe to socialize with one another in ways that are not mediated by uh, technology in the ways that we do at the current moment. Basically, in a nutshell, I ask us to start to play with our digital experiences and reflect on how our lives function in that way. Um, more than anything, and this is a very personal thing, I try to always practice a sense of mindfulness in relation to technology because I know it's so immersive and the dopamine that fires in my brain is so stimulating, but it always leaves me exhausted and wanting more. So what happens if we try to take a meditative, if you will, a slow food kind of approach toward technology on a personal level? Those are things we can do right now. Um, those are steps we can take right now. Uh, we need to understand the best ways for technologies to serve us as individuals, but also to serve the communities we're part of. And the best way to understand that is to play with it, uh, play with it in a mindful way where we have control over the technology rather than it controlling us as some sort of inevitable, inexhaustible force. Well, Ramesh Srinivasan, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, I loved it. And I love your podcast. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you soon, and have a really happy new year. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.